Rust Day. I have here in my magic box the cardboard out of American commerce. I have the extra questions that we didn't have time for to answer in previous satsangs. And uh, I'll be making these uh, question and answer sessions uh, until we get questions all answered. So I'm just pulling them out to surprise myself since I don't remember what any of them were. Well, it says Jnana, Bhakti, anything. Okay. Shankaracharya was the greatest philosopher of India. Uh, he, his writings are exceptional. He wrote commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, on the Yoga Sutras, on the major Upanishads, and many, many other works on aspects of Vedanta, especially Advaita Vedanta. And he gave the most interesting and I think complete and intelligent definitions in, in just not many words. He simply said, Bhakti is seeking self-realization and Jnana is the state of having obtained it. The whole Bhakti movement is very, very modern understand India's ancient, and although it started in the 16th century, uh, that's just a new kid on the block. And it isn't about bhakti, it isn't about devotion. Devotion means dedication. It doesn't mean, oh, I love you and I would swim over the ocean to see you, as if God is some kind of a coquette that we uh, take the male role and uh, say, oh, darling, your eyes are more than I can even hardly bear. I love you. I love you. And I, I'm not exaggerating because there are rhapsodies about Krishna's restless eyebrows. Now, if you can figure out anything supremely attractive about restless eyebrows, write me and let me know. So there's all this foolishness. It's just sentimentality. It is a sort of sanctification of lust. And I'm not being defamatory because there are bhakti teachers in India who will even talk about Krishna's transcendental lust for the gopis. So they say it, but it's nonsense. Real devotion is dedication. Like people who are devoted to their country, they die for it. People who are truly devoted to other people, people they love, they live for them. And they live their life considering these people and then in the same way, a real devotee lives his life 
for the attainment of self-realization because that's why God sent us forth into this world. God didn't make us. We were eternal beings. But God expanded himself as Ishwara, and Ishwara made all the field of relative existence. And then he put the individual eternal spirits, the Atmas, into a form, a simple form, an atom of hydrogen. And it all evolved from there. So this is God's purpose for us. So if we have devotion to God, we will have devotion to self-realization. I don't see how it could be seen as to be clearer. So the bhakti nonsense, and it is nonsense. You understand, I'm a very sentimental person. When I first encountered Indian religion and so on, I was, I was completely satisfied with this kind of approach. But I eventually realized that, well, when the emotion was over, what was there? In fact, I met people that were uh, very famous singers of devotional music. Maybe they'd written books about devotion. And when the show was on, it was all, oh, transcendental bliss and transcendental joy and oh, God, God, God. But when it was over, I found they were more materialistic and of a far lower consciousness than almost the average person I saw on the street in India. <clears throat> That's not an exaggeration. So that's it. And jnana, again, is a sit around saying, I am that and thou art that and there's all one. What does that mean to you? You know, it's very interesting. I've read a book, translation of a European book, that took place in ancient Greece and in the time of the Stoic philosophers, especially when they were at their height. Stoics had the idea that, well, this isn't all ultimately real, therefore you should never let yourself be immersed and aware only of external reality. So in this book, this evil woman who had slaves gave kind of a party and one of the slaves displeased her. So she had the slave crucified, literally crucified, but the cross lying down flat on the ground and all the party goers are there around it. You want to talk about the glory that was Greece? So the poor woman is in convulsions and this philosopher comes up and says, uh, I, I don't know if this will help at all. But none of this is really happening, you know. I'm sure she was eternally grateful for that. Of course, fortunately, it was fiction. But you can teach a parrot to say all is one, all is one, all is one. And it's the truth. All is one. But you have to know it. The people who say it's all one and it's all the divine grace, 
give them a good hard slap and see if they'll say, thank you, God. I don't think they will. Or see them have trouble with their income tax and just see how the tears of devotion do not course down their cheeks. So phony jnana, phony bhakti, have nothing. The self is the center of real devotion, and the self is the center of real wisdom. And the self and God are one. So you can say the Paramatman, or you can say the Jivatman. Essentially, they're one, though one is finite and the other is infinite. As far as anything, well, there's a lot of things I could say. But maybe I've been naughty enough on talking about this. You know, when someone is your friend, you don't lie to them. You don't soft sell them. And we haven't met. And chances are we never will. But because you care enough to listen, then you're a friend of the spirit. And you don't lie to your friends and you don't hide things from your friends. And you don't let them have false comforting ideas, which eventually they'll find out are not true and they'll be more miserable than if they'd known it and prepared themselves for it. I say this because for example, uh, oh no, never mind. They'll never stop. All right. What is Swami Nirvananda's view on yogis using digital recorders and radio sweep devices during divination sessions? I guess this is because I've written a book, though it has not yet been published, though it's on our website, about the use of Taroa's divination, because it's good for a yogi to not think that he can rely entirely on his feeling or intuition because all kinds of things in the subconscious mind can interfere there. So divination is good. To be honest, I have the faintest idea what a radio sweep device is. And I, uh, I'm not sure about, I suppose the idea is devices that will put out an electromagnetic field. Well, that can be problematic about anything, not just about divination. In the, um, I believe, the posting about vibrational medicine, I talk about the problem of EMFs, electromagnetic frequency uh, fields, and how it's good to know how to shield them. But let's stay more with spiritual things. You can just look at that and see what I have to say about it. I think it would interfere with some people because they're more sensitive to it. And there are others that it wouldn't mean any difference to it at all. Uh, all right. Please explain how Jesus took on the sins of all even of people who sin today. Well, he didn't. It's very easy. That's a very easy answer. This is just silly 
Christian mythology and superstition. But it says in the Bible, oh, the sins of all were laid upon him. Okay. Now, where do we go from there? You see? Now, I've written a book called Robe of Light. And in that, Jesus is discussed. And this question of Jesus as Savior and um, relationship with Jesus as Savior is discussed there. And the thing is, that is a gigantic, long subject, and that's why there's a book. But you can go to the website and download it for free, and that will explain it. I'm sorry if uh, uh, that doesn't seem polite to not answer all, but it's just, it's a question already answered in a sense, and it can be easily can be easily found. All right. You know, this is very interesting. I I thought of this only yesterday. I wondered if it would come up. Because this is one I did remember of all of them. This is the one, the only one I remembered. I want to be visited by the divine grace always. Well, what's, what is grace? Kripa, K-R-I-P-A in Sanskrit. What is the grace? We are here in samsara and we're suffering. We are living in delusions. Therefore, grace is that which removes the delusions and frees us from samsara. Where is that grace? In a sense, everything around us is God's grace because he put forth this entire range of creation just so you and I could evolve. So that's grace. The law of karma is grace. Yes, the reaction for a negative karma is grace because it teaches you eventually. In the Bible, it says, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. That's bhakti, real bhakti. For those in who love God above all, and they order their life in the perspective of that, they will see and understand that everything in their life is for the good. And as a person who's had lots of severe illnesses and have had uh, a lot of unfortunate uh, experiences with evil people, uh, I'm not just saying it in a glib manner. Uh, there it is. But the greatest grace you need, you see, uh, there are people who never want to take responsibility for their life or for what comes into their life. But if you believe in karma, truly, well, you have to. And so there are people that when they either don't come up to the mark as they should, 
or when they do something that is foolish and negative, that because they have no intention of reforming, they say, God help me, or well, will you help me? And they really like that in relation to spiritual figures. Therefore, a couple of people fully responsible for themselves had done something quite wrong. It's not told in the source where I read it. But they asked Yogananda, will you give us your blessing? With the idea that, oh, we can't do it without you. But look, they and Yogananda weren't the same person. And Yogananda wasn't going to get inside of them and think with their mind and move with their body. So Yogananda said, you already have my blessing and you already have God's blessing. What is missing is your blessing. So we do need to say have mercy, but we need to say it to ourselves. For heaven's sakes, me, have mercy on me. And we have grace. We have intelligence. We have will. Therefore, we can do sadhana and deliver ourselves from samsara. Now, that's grace. So why don't we have mercy on ourselves? Why don't we have grace on ourselves? I'll uh, leave you to answer that question. All right. Karma and reincarnation. Well, I'm sure I could talk two or three hours on this. So I, I really kind of don't know what to what to say because I could just define them and that isn't much. How let's let me talk on how to approach or how to look at what's a perspective to have on karma and reincarnation answer evolution and learning when you learn your evolution moves forward but when your evolution moves forward you're also able to learn more so they're interdependent you might consider them the same thing this is what it's all about. There is no reward. There is no punishment. There is only reaction. Therefore, we have to take absolute responsibility for our life as it is and for our life as it is going to be. I know in India, the phonies say, oh, you need the grace of the guru. Oh, some Mahatma's grace needs to come to you. All right. And look at the people who tell you that. Do you want to be like them? So, the thing is this. There was a wonderful story they used to tell children in the 19th and early 20th centuries at an era where children were not ignored and neglected as they are now. 
and certainly when parents took more responsibility for their children. I know that sounds extreme, but it is extreme. The situation, not in every family, not all parents, of course not, but there was this story. There were several stories I heard because uh, I kind of grew up halfway in the 19th century with people that were very oriented toward that. I had a Victorian upbringing, fortunately. By the way, Agatha Christie says in her autobiography that one of the things she is most grateful for is the fact she was a Victorian and raised as a Victorian. So in this story, <clears throat> there was a little boy who went to visit some relatives to stay for a while who lived uh, in, a, in a valley. And so he was out playing by himself and he sort of, you know, gave a war whoop or something that, you know, he made some sound and he heard it coming from across the way. So he said, who is that? And a voice said, who is that? He said, well, I want to know, but who are you? But I want to know who are you, said the voice. So anyway, he got disgusted and he started, shall we say, uh, saying some insults to that naughty little boy across the way. And the naughty little boy just read, repeated them back to him. Remember the kids that used to drive you nuts when they got into mood to just say back to you everything you said? So he went in and he told his relatives, there's a really bad little boy that lives across from us. They said, really? How? Yes. And he said, and he said, tear bad things to me. What did he say? Well, he said a few things. And they said, don't you know what an echo is? And he didn't. And they explained that it was his own voice. And he was the one being a bad little boy. So that's what karma is. Look at your life around you and you can know what kind of a person you were in a previous life. See, there are people, they love to whine and talk about what a tough time they've had in life. Oh, how they've been let down by people. One of the most hardly repressed, violent people I've ever met. I mean, I found him a little bit frightening, frankly. Uh, I could tell he was of the suddenly just give you a punch if he was in the mood. Well, he had his whole little talk. It began when I was only five years old. My mother abandoned my little brother and me by leaving us in a homeless shelter in New York City. And it went on from there. And of course, I being a coward didn't say, well, it just shows what a rotten person you are and you need to change yourself. That's why all this came into your life. It was yourself. Your life is a mirror. Look at it, have the courage to acknowledge it, but he would have hit me. so. Uh, I did like say, I speak to you so plainly. Well, yeah, I'm just on the screen. So uh, uh, I'm brave, brave and bold. But you just do have to understand, learn from your, learn 
from your karma. The rebirth is past. The reincarnation is gone. Who cares who you were? When Yogananda was first in America, in Boston, uh, a super psychic came to town who gave psychic readings, of course, for money. And several of Yogananda's uh, students from his yoga classes, uh, some women, several women, uh, went, of course, each in their own time, not together, to this psychic who gave past life readings. So one of them came uh, to Yoganandaji and said, I went to this psychic and he told me I was Mary, Queen of Scots. Well, it showed the woman didn't know much about history because you wouldn't want to have been Mary, Queen of Scots, but there you are. So, and then in a day or so, another one came and said, you know, I had a reading from this psychic. And he told me I was Mary, Queen of Scots. Well, one by one, they came and told him. So he invited them to his apartment. And when they were all there, he said, now, between you all, figure out which one is the real Mary, Queen of Scots. Uh, so it's sort of like that, isn't it? You know, it makes him want to say something has and tell you something has nothing to do with that. The, the question. Uh, I think I may have told it in satsang, uh, but I'll tell it again because I just love it. Yogananda one time to have a rest from all the traveling and the classes and so on. He went to stay in the country with this man who, who had taken some of his classes. And there was just this man and Yoganandaji in a nice big old rambling farmhouse. And uh, <clears throat> the man thought he was very, very psychic. And uh, he'd say, the phone would ring and he'd say, no, I, that's, that's so-and-so calling me about such and such a reason. Pick it up, of course, it wouldn't be them. Yogananda said, don't you see? I mean, you didn't really know. They didn't pay any attention to him. So one time there was a bang at the door, the front door of the farmhouse. And the man said, my brother, that's my brother, he's come to visit. Yogananda said, wait before you go to the door to meet your brother. I want to get upstairs. And Yogananda ran upstairs and went in the room where he was staying and he closed the door because when that man opened the door, it was the farm bull that came charging in <laughs> and chased him all around until finally he was able to evade it and get some help. So uh, there you are. There you are. All right. How to balance acquiring material wealth, that is making money, versus the desire to make progress on our spiritual journeys. Both require time and energy. And I sometimes find myself in a prioritization dilemma between these two seemingly divergent paths. Well, it's just which one you prefer. 
and there's no reason why you can't have both because one of the greatest philosophers India has ever produced was Janaka, the king of Mithila. People came from all over India to talk to him and to learn from him. And he was one of the richest people in the land. He lived in a palace and was incredibly successful ruling. And <clears throat> honestly, gaining wealth. In other words, he didn't tax his uh, subjects to death. And he, he's considered one of the greatest. So it can be done. This is why Yogananda called Mr. James Lynn Rajasi Janakananda. Actually, it came out Rajasi. The real word was is Rajarshi, which means royal king, royal rishi. Janakananda. In other words, Ananda the bliss. In other words, he that has the bliss of the great Rishi Janaka. Because, for example, Rajasi was in charge of the largest, what they call a residual, I think, fire insurance company in America. He had several secretaries. There was so much work to be done. Nevertheless, what did Rajasi do? He would work for a certain amount of time and they say, okay, go away now. And they leave for 20 or 30 minutes and he would go deeply into meditation. Then he'd call them back. Then he'd work more. Then he'd send them away. Several times throughout the workday, he meditated. Dr. Lewis, Yoganandaji's first <clears throat> first American disciple, was a dentist. He had good practice. Dr. Lewis would meditate before going to work. But when he got to work, he would go up the stairs to the floor where his office was located, and there was a little kind of alcove there, and he would walk into the alcove, and he would stand. He couldn't sit to meditate. But he would stand there and go into meditation until he felt he really had himself aligned with the infinite. Then he went into his office and he saw his patients and between every patient he meditated. What was their secret? They wanted it. Where there's a will, there's a way. Absolutely. And you have to use your brain to make money. And you know somewhat, you, you have to use your brain even more to find God. Again, this isn't the little devotee. Oh, Lord, I'm just sitting on your lap, you know. You know, get off the lap and get on down the road to self-realization. So, uh, and to pretend that having money is going to interfere with a spiritual life, that's ridiculous. I have known Rajas. They had kingdoms. Now, because of the evil way the government was at the time after independence, uh, they had tried to just wipe out the Rajas. But it didn't work because the Rajas were warriors. And they survived. And they had their kingdoms. 
and they just simply figured out how to do it to keep afloat, and not just keep afloat, but they used money that they accumulated to help their people. I knew a Raja that had a free school for children in his palace. Therefore, the idea that it can't be done or they're incompatible is nonsense. Life is life. But as far as the dilemma about which you're going to put first, that's all up to you. But we've all lived lives of poverty and we've all lived lives of wealth and we still came back to this place. So the money didn't do anything with us and we couldn't take it with us. But from life to life, you take with you the spiritual development that you have earned or won in that life. Isn't that the truth? So the thing that really stays with you is sadhana. So you just decide what you prefer and don't try to make excuses of things. You know, why make an excuse of it? Just make your choice. If you want money, go for money. You don't have to hide behind any kind of any kind of pretense. You know? I knew I knew a man from one of the wealthiest families of northern India. In fact, his families were best friends with Swami Vivekananda. When Swami Vivekananda came to Banaras, today called Varanasi, he only stayed with his family. And the family house, I couldn't believe when I went there. I mean, it, it was bigger than most apartment buildings. And it was really quite amazing. <clears throat> and uh, he, he, his, uh, I, I can't even remember, sorry, his, his last name was Basu, which often if you read, uh, in books about Bengal, you find also the word Bose, B-O-S-E. Balaram Bose was one of the greatest devotees of Sri Ramakrishna, but actually Basu was it. And my friend was of the family of Sri Balaram Bose, a great sage on his own right. So anyway, uh, We were all together, we were together, he and I, uh, when Ma Nandamai had come to the city of Kanpur. And at the same time, these religious discourses were going on uh, about a mile or so away by a very famous uh, Sadhu Swami scholar uh, who had very, very great um, respect for Ma. And so Ma went every day to when he gave his talks. <clears throat> so one time, this university professor uh, from Calcutta uh, was also there. And when I came to the ashram, Ma and the people hadn't come back. But this professor had come back a little earlier. And I was with 
my friend. The reason I can't tell you his name is because we all called him Patul Da. Da is a respectful uh, suffix that means actually elder brother. And Patul is a vegetable that looks like a potato. It's sort of like a waxy potato. Not anywhere as big as a potato, but it's like that. And when he was born, when he was fat, and he stayed fat through his babyhood, and they called him Pato. And that stuck through his whole life. So because mother's devotees were like friends to everybody, and they loved the, to each one, they loved each other, uh, Patalda is the only name I ever had for him. Sorry for that long diversion, but so it was. So the professor who loved theory, naturally, he said, oh, Soyakanda Nandaji was giving a wonderful talk. And he was saying how you must live absolutely frugally. That even the clothes you wear should be made of least amount of cloth as possible. Papa said, do you believe that? I don't believe that. I have what I have and I'm enjoying it. And now I'll tell you, Patoda was a very ascetic person who did live in a very frugal way, but by choice, and not to show off to people. Yeah. All right. What is worship in spirit and truth? Well, spirit is truth, so we don't have to... Uh, bother with that question because ultimate truth is reality you see i'm speaking to you now but after a while i'm going to turn this off and i won't be speaking to you therefore the truth that is now i'm speaking to you won't be true then there is Absolute truth and there's relative truth, you see. I can say I'm so many years old. Well, that wasn't true a year before now and it won't be a true, a true a year after now. So real truth, is, what is truth, you see? Pilate asked that to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus said, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate said, what is truth? He was one of these jaded sophisticates and then walked out. He didn't wait for Jesus to answer. It's good to know Sanskrit. I mean, not, you don't have to know how to read it and how to speak it. But it's good to have a good Sanskrit vocabulary. Satya is truth. But it's, it's speaking the truth, you see when that's one of the rules of yama niyama, satya, always being truthful. Someone once asked Shankaracharya, well, what is satya, though? And he said, there's no such thing as satya. <laughs> one of the things I love about India is, here today and gone tomorrow, uh, you, you've kind of learned that you can't just say that's it and it's it. That's what we with simplistic and lazy minds want. But that isn't the way it works. So Shankara said, there's no such thing as satya, there's only the sat, the true. 
And that's what is true. God is truth. There is nothing else. He is called, that is called, because beyond he or she, Sat Chit Ananda. Existence itself is also Sat. Truth, reality. Chit conscious bliss. God is ever existent conscious bliss. That is perhaps the highest expression we can give for God that gives us an indication of God's nature. So, you see, I can't help what you read in the Bible. Uh, it's been heavily edited by people who put their own ideas in there. Once Constantine converted to Christianity, everything had to be changed. So when you read the Bible, Sri Ramakrishna said all scriptures are like a heap of sugar and sand. You've got to know how to take the sugar and leave the sand. Plus, the, the oldest texts we have are from 300 years after Jesus had lived. And therefore, when Constantine made Christianity the state religion, it had to conform to what, what he wanted and to what most of his citizens wanted. Therefore, we have all kinds of utterly pagan ideas as fundamental Christian doctrines, such as hell, eternal hell. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It has nothing to do with Judaism. It certainly has nothing to do with Hinduism. So the Holy Spirit is female. Ruach in Hebrew, it's female. The Spirit is female. And this is the way it was. Remember, Jesus didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And the same word is used for that. And the Holy Spirit is feminine. And when the Holy Spirit's referred to, the word should be she. Well, men ruled in the Roman Empire. Women were pretty playthings or they were slaves. So the Holy Spirit, who is the great power of God from whom in which everything lives, pulled can't be a woman, it has to be a man. So God was lucky. He got one of the first sex change operations ever done. And behold, the Holy Spirit became a man. <laughs> but it isn't true. So even the expressions, you can only, you have to be one thing and the worshiped has to be another. The worshiper is one thing. The worshiper is another. But that's duality. And although God is infinite and you are finite, you and God are essentially spirit. And God as spirit is your is the essence of your spirit. So in one sense, God is everything and everyone. And in another sense, the multiplicity exists. 
That's just the way it goes. You know, God's creative. He, he's not a one-note person. They have the joke about a man that just played the same note all the time on his violin, and he drove his wife crazy. And finally she said, why do you only play one note? He said, and other people, they play many notes. He said, well, they're looking for it, but I found it. Well, it works as a joke. It would be pretty awful if you had to hear it all the time. So who is there to worship? Sure, I'm a Christian. You say there was a salt doll that went to measure the depth of the ocean. But when the doll got into the ocean, it merged and melted. And who was going to come back and tell about the ocean? Now, these are transcendent things. So you don't worship God, you become God. The God in you is with a little g, and the God beyond is with a big g. But it's still G-O-D, just three letters. And therefore, know God. Become God. Become yourself. Wake up and know yourself. Again, this is why all this whining so silly. Well, I'm just human. You are not. You are not. We Look at what the thing, things people do under stress. I have heard of people actually lifting cars off of people who were trapped underneath. I knew in, in the area where I lived, there was a man who was in who was in a car wreck, but he got out and he ran a few miles for help. Then he fell over. Then when the medicos came, they found out his spine was broken. How did he run miles? You see, we're so much more than we are, or we think we are, that is. We're so much more than we think. And that's nice, because then people would expect something from us. So just think, when St. Ignatius, he's called Theophorus, the God-bearer. In other words, he carried God about inside him wherever he went. He was a disciple of St. John, the beloved disciple. He was arrested, of course, and he was taken to Rome to, of course, be killed and uh, to be put in the arena to be killed by the lions. And as he walked into the gate of the arena, those with him, because Christians, of course, were knew him. He was very famous and many Christians were accompanying him. And they all said, a voice from heaven spoke and said, Ignatius, quit yourself like a man. Don't whine. You're not a child. You're not a dog. You're not an animal. Be a man. And by man, that means a human, a human being. Anyway, my dear uh, lady friends, don't mind that because I'm telling you, I know a lot of you are more men than, than, than these characters are. The, the, the there was a great saint. She's a canonized saint in the church. Her name was Mother Sara. She lived in Cairo. And monks used to come in from the desert to visit her because she was such a great and holy person. And she would say to them, I'm more a man than any one of you will ever be. 
because in Latin, vir means strength. It means power. You see? And so she had it. And that's true. All right. How can we bring about change in accordance with our will? Well, first you have to know if it's your will or if it's your whim or if it's a desire, if it's a want. But is it your will? I mean, I'm not trying to ask you riddles. I mean, that, this is the truth. And first, I would try to find out where the change I wanted was in accordance with my nature, forget my will. I've known people who have said, before I'm so many years old, I'm going to make so much money, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Well, there's nothing wrong with willpower, though as Yogananda pointed out, won't power was also, is also a very great thing. Someone once said, oh, won't you help me to have willpower? He said, no, in this case, considering what you've been doing, you need won't power. So then you use your head and you bring it about. Sorry, I don't think God is going to be there to uh, give any, uh, any assistance. Now, I'm aware that Dion Fortune, one of the first psychotherapists of England, but who also was a great occultist, defined magic as bringing about change by an act of will. And actually, I think that's the only way you bring about change. An act of will, real will, not whim, not desire. That's intelligent. Because I might think it'd be fun to float in the air as I talk to you and impress you about what a great yogi am I. But that's just idiocy. Do we have willpower or do we just have want power? Wish power. All right. I would like to know more about the Namavali, not the Namavali and not yogis, including Christ. Well, that's in the book, The Christ of India. And then to know more about the not yogis, you can uh, see the book, Soham Yoga, The Yoga of the Self which explains about that. And so also does the book, Light of Soham, which is about the great not yogi of the 20th century, uh, Gajanana Murlidhar Gupta, who we just call Gajanana Maharaj. These books are on the website of OCOY. Does one receive help with their spiritual progress from enlightened persons slash beings that are not in this material world? I don't know if you're fond of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I am. <laughs> I read it all during Holy Week one year. Um, and they had a saying, 
Go not to the fairies, for they will tell you, or the elves, sorry, not fairies. Go not to the elves, for they will tell you both yes and no. And <laughs> so the answer is, there is help, and there in other situations is not help. And they say in Buddhism, a very wonderful thing, it's a very wonderful idea, that the moment you decide to attain enlightenment, I don't mean to become a better person. I don't mean to somehow get more spiritual. When you understand the only goal of the human being is liberation, that's enlightenment. That the moment a person decides they are going to go toward enlightenment and they want it, they say a multitude of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas become aware of this and they begin to help you. But remember, you can't fool a Buddha. You can't fool a Bodhisattva. So they'll only be helping the people who really mean it. And the people who really mean it are the people who would say, there's nothing I won't do to gain it. There's nothing I won't give up to gain it. And there's nothing I won't get if that's what's needed for me to gain it. You see? Th that's the thing. It's not like just sitting around wishing for something. Therefore, when that happens, certainly you can have help. But the truth is, in you is everything you need, because in you is God, who is infinite. And you'll find out there is a difference between God, but there it is at the core of your being. And therefore, the only real help you can have for spiritual progress is the help you give yourself by uniting your consciousness with the divine consciousness. And the only way I know that I believe works, having fiddled over half a century of my life with fake gurus and fake yogis, is to take up Soham Yoga, Soham Sadhana. And then you will be that which you want to realize. So you won't need any help. But until then, you're, you're the only friend you're ever going to have. You're the only guru you're ever going to have. Because it's true, God is the ultimate guru, but how often does God speak to us? And if he did, would we like it? You see, the Hebrews said to Moses, how do we know God's telling you all these things? How do we know that's so? Why can't we hear God for ourselves? Well, their attitude was a stinking attitude, and their real interest was pretty poor, but it's also got the seed of the right question. Yes, why don't I? Why don't I talk with God? I have God talk back. So, Moses said, well, I'll, let me see about it. And they came back and said, yes, God will speak to you. 
And they gathered once and God did speak and they were terrified. They hated it. And they said, from now on, you just tell us what God wants us to know. We don't want to talk with God. A very dear friend of mine, who was, by the way, truly spiritually involved, but he was very humble, remarkable man. Those of you who have been to India, if you've gone to Delhi, I hope you've gone to the Birla Mandir, which is a gigantic temple there, beautiful thing. He he managed that. He ran that for Raja Birla, the one who built it, uh, for many years. And he was a man of incredible charity. He actually had a whole free nursing home that he ran. He was really, really, truly wonderful. But he told me that uh, he got this idea, I should know God. Well, that's the right idea. But he, it got, became like a ferment in him, which is really a pretty good thing too. So he went to see Ma when she was passing through Delhi. And uh, he went to the train station. And very frequently, uh, when nothing particular was happening and there was space, Ma would walk. It was kind of up and down, up and down. She didn't like walk for a block or more, but she would just walk back and forth. In fact, I've had uh, interviews with Ma where she walked most of the time. So she was walking back and forth, and he came in, and he felt fervent about it. So he called up Ma. She stopped, said yes. He said, Ma, I want to see God. He said, Ma looked at him and she smiled and she inclined her head. And she said very quietly, are you sure you want to see God? And he told me, I knew if I said yes, she would tell me to become a sannyasi. So I put my hands together and said, no, Ma, I don't want to see God. And Ma laughed and kept on walking. Yes. What are we really after? In fact, I've, I've uh, been thinking about this, uh, relaying this in, our, in, in the online satsangs. Uh, anybody could see Ma. You know, they have in England a, a proverb, a cat can look at a king. In other words, stays a cat, but can look at it. So people flocked and flocked and flocked to see mother by tens of thousands. I'm sure millions had seen Ma by the time she left her body. Some people came and he spent a lot of time. Some people traveled with Ma. And uh, I did. <laughs> and, and some people spent virtue their life. And there were always crowds around. In fact, in Calcutta, I remember her birthday, you had, they brought to bring out a division of police just to try to keep order. And people would actually come and they'd want something mother had. They, people would come. I am not joking. This is fake bhakti. People would come with scissors or a knife and they would try to want to come up and cut some mother's hair off. I remember one time Ma was walking and the crowd just surged toward her. And 
I can't tell you the 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 expression of like incredible pain came on her face. I mean agony. Yes. So everyone, people are running. And so Ma said this. If you want a quotable quote from Ma, which I find most people don't when they're really to the point. She said, people come here constantly. And they all have something they want from me. And they all get what they want from me. That's interesting. Because if you hear people say, well, Ma wouldn't say and Ma wouldn't talk or Ma wouldn't give, it's because they didn't want her to do it. Because she lived true. So she said, they all come, they want something, and they get it. But nobody comes for Ma. Okay? Nobody comes for Ma. Consider what that means. To have Ma, you would have to have the consciousness that was Ma. Ma referred to herself as this body. Ma would talk about herself very much like in, in the third person. And when people would ask her, what are you or who are you? Ma would say, I am whatever you think I am. And that has a lot of implications. But ultimately, the idea was coming right back to themselves. So the truth was, if you didn't come to Ma wanting to know the self, you hadn't come for Ma. And you never met Ma. You never knew Ma. I mean, I've heard of people who have traveled with Ma for like 10 or 20 years, saying and doing things that were incredible that anyone that had been associated with Ma would ever do. So what does it mean? They weren't in association with her. They were onlookers. They might have appeared to be four feet away, but they were thousands of miles away. And I've said to people, it's a pity they never met Ma because they didn't meet Ma. They met what they wanted to meet. They met what they wanted to see. These are the people who came from the West and went back and said, oh, I like Ma, but I didn't like the ashrams, and I didn't like the people in the ashrams. Well, they got to live with Ma, you didn't. So do you really like Ma? Of course not. <laughs> Ma didn't give them what they really wanted. And so you, well, she was famous. She's an autobiography of a yogi. You can't say, I didn't like it not my ma. I thought she was crazy. Or I thought she was awful. So you said, I didn't like the people around her. I didn't like Didi. Didi was 
the number one devotee of Maha, I won't take your time up by explaining her. But they say, oh, it's all Didi that does this, everything. Everything they didn't like in the ashram. Oh, it's all those people. It's not Ma. Yeah. Because they didn't want to see Ma as she was. They didn't want to know Ma as she was. Which would be, which would happen anyway only if you could become like Ma, if you could see Ma. With what eyes would you see her? Yes, indeed. 